Welcome back to Point of Insanity Games Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today going to be continuing our look at historical weapons from folklore and history. This is going to be the first of a two-part series, mini-series if you will, where we're going to be taking a look at weapons from American history and folklore. Now the reason I'm doing two parts is my original idea is I was going to do one I was going to do one episode where some of it would deal with historical weapons and then the other would deal with weapons from Native American folklore. However, as I started doing more research, I started to come up with more material, so I decided I was going to break this into a two-parter. So first, we're going to take a look at historical weapons, and again, these are going to be weapons where some of them do actually exist, and then there's also one that is exists strictly within the realms of folklore. And then the second part is going to focus on weapons from Native American legends. Now, one thing that can be problematic when you're figuring how to use these weapons into a, in a campaign and how to stat them for Dungeons & Dragons really boils down to genre because a lot of the weapons that I'm going to be talking about in this section didn't have any sort of spiritual or supernatural powers associated with them. So they're not, well, it would be kind of hard to imagine a historical fantasy type campaign in the period of the American Revolution or some of the other uh, time periods we're going to be talking about. But, you know, of course it can be done. There's lots of creative game masters out there that always seem to think of new and interesting ways to run their campaigns. However, one genre where I think these weapons would actually be very, very much in place in is the post-apocalyptic genre. And the reason I say that is because sometimes in the works of the post-apocalypse genre, relics from the past are often seen to have great value and can take on an almost mythological quality. So that's why a lot of the weapons that I'm going to be talking about today, I'm going to give them fairly low statistical modifiers, but I think those modifiers, those would probably uh, come more from the quality of the weapon as opposed to magic. Though it is also possible that if a character in such a campaign possesses one of these weapons, it could have somewhat of a placebo effect on him or her, where you're possessing this weapon that was once used by a legendary figure that could very well make it, you know, make you fight harder, or, you know, it might. Uh, make you fight more skillfully than you normally would because, again, you've got this historical, almost mythological weapon. It might have a little bit of a psychological impact on you. So we're going to take a look at some of these weapons right after this quick announcement. It was a dark and stormy night 
and the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine, much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing... A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with... Vincent Price. Like, everything about Vincent Price. And as the fire died down, Nikki would conclude the evening... With something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Do you like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old-timey axe murder story. Then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at queensofthedamnedpodcast.wordpress.com, qotdpodcast.podbean.com, or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! And we're back. So first we're going to talk a little bit about George Washington, first president of the United States. He actually owned multiple swords during his life. And one website that actually has a lot of good information about his swords is mountvernon.org. It also includes an interview with Dr. Eric Goldstein, who wrote a book about Washington's swords. Now, one person we'll hear about when we discuss Washington's swords is a man named John Bailey. He was Washington's favorite cutler. So, if we're going to use him in a historical campaign, I could see him being the American equivalent to their Germanic character, Wayland the Smith, in that he was, again, Wayland the Smith was believed to have made several important and magical and mythological weapons. So I think if you were to set a campaign in revolutionary America, John Bailey could play a similar role where weapons and equipment made by him could be of exceptional quality, perhaps even magic if magical, if you're going to incorporate magic into the campaign. Most of Washington's swords were either small swords or cuttoes. The cutto was developed from the cutlass and was primarily used as a slashing weapon. Weapons like these are usually associated with pirates and sailors, and that is because these weapons were more practical for their line of work. It was sturdy enough to cut through rope and canvas, but could also be used to clear through brush. The smaller size of the weapon also made it easier to use in close quarter combat. Small swords developed from rapiers. The small sword was lighter and easier to handle. It was used for both dueling and self-defense, though these swords were also often worn by gentlemen from the upper classes, because there was a saying in the 18th century that no gentleman was dressed without a sword. So again, they could be seen as somewhat of a status symbol as well. Also, when we look at the times in the 1700s, the, the late 1700s, by now, the use of swords in 
large-scale combat was pretty much gone by the wayside because we had early firearms and cannons that were becoming the primary weapon during that time period. So usually most soldiers probably would not have known how to use a sword, or at least they probably wouldn't. I'm guessing they probably wouldn't have had a lot of training in it. So generally the swords are going to be found with your higher-ranking officers. And again, as I said before, there was that saying that no gentleman was dressed unless he had a sword. So you, again, you could see it almost like a like a Porsche or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. Yeah, maybe the person who owns that car doesn't necessarily know how to drive it at its top speeds. Well, at least handle it safely, <laughs> but... It's a status symbol. You're basically saying, hey, look at me. I'm so wealthy that I can afford a Porsche. But needless to say, fast, expensive cars, something that only a wealthy person would be able to afford. And I guess we could say the same with a sword where you know, only someone who had a good deal of money would be able to afford to buy something like that, which wouldn't have a practical everyday application. Now, according to Goldstein, Washington would often wear different swords for different occasions. And in an interview, he stated, While it is difficult to find a modern-day equivalent to the fashionable and functional sword, it is tempting to compare the phenomenon to expensive men's luxury watches or custom leather shoes. Just as one wouldn't wear dirty old sneakers to a business meeting, George Washington would not have chosen to wear an out-of-style or worn fighting sword to address Congress. Now, the first one of Washington's swords I'd like to talk about is called the Silver and Ivory Hilted Cut Toe. I would stat this as a saber, and it is often also known as Washington's Battle Sword, and it had a distinctive green ivory handle. The reason it was probably Washington's most famous sword is because it appears in a painting of him with his uniform in, with a scene from the Battle of Princeton in the background. It also appears in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. However, that is actually a very serious anachronism because Washington would not have had that particular sword at either of those events. It is believed that he got that silver and ivory-hilted cut-toe sword sometime around 1778 to early 1779. The crossing of the Delaware happened in 1776, and the Battle of Princeton occurred in 1777. Now, as far as how we would stat this out, I would probably give it a, about a plus two, but I would also have its main ability is that it should influence the character's charisma and reactions check. Because, again, Washington, being the first president of the United States and also a general, uh, he would have had very strong leadership and personality qualities that would have made people look up to him. So that's why I think it's it's most prominent abilities should be to influence reactions. And if you wanted to add 
a bit of mysticism into it, if you wanted to make it magical, I would maybe give it the ability to cast certain charm spells, uh, like awe would be a good example where, uh, again, you when you maybe when you're holding up the sword, people are just so struck in awe about you because you've got this mythological legendary weapon. Next is a sword called the Lion-Headed Cutto. And again, being a Cutto, I stat this as a saber or cutlass. It had a bone grip with a lion's head on the pommel. It was probably made in Philadelphia in 1770. And most likely, this was probably his main sword in the early stages of the Revolutionary War. And later on, it was given to his brother. So I'd probably give this one a plus one, but as far as magical or semi-magical abilities, I would probably give it the ability to give the character a saving throw bonus to defend against fear. And the reason I thought about that is because, again, it has a lion as the head of the, it has a lion's head for the, the pommel, and lions are often associated with courage and strength. I would also give it the ability to raise morale in large-scale combat and maybe grant some bonuses because, again, since it was one of Washington's early swords, it is quite possible it went into battle with him. Next is the steel-hilted small sword. So this would probably be statted like a rapier. This sword is interesting because it's not really that pretty to look at. And there's a reason for that, and it actually has a very interesting story behind it. It's believed that this may have been one of another one of Washington's earlier swords. It was said he didn't like the blade, so he had John Bailey make a new blade for this weapon. One of his nephews, Lewis William Washington, owned the sword by the time of the Civil War. And during that conflict, most of Washington's descendants had sided with the South. Here's where the interesting part of the weapon's history begins, though. Lewis Washington, along with his sword, was kidnapped by an abolitionist named John Brown because he thought the sword would grant him victory, that Washington's spirit was somehow imbued in the weapon. So again, even back then, we can see that there was still this tendency to sometimes view weapons that were owned by legendary people as having some sort of mystical quality behind it. Eventually, Washington was rescued and John Brown was executed. The North would eventually win the war, which left many of Washington's descendants who sided with the South in a dire financial situation. So this caused Lewis Washington to eventually sell the sword and in 1871, the weapon was sold to the state of New York. In 1911, the building that the sword was being stored in caught fire, and the blade was ruined, and the sword was almost lost to us forever. The heat of the fire caused the sword to bend like a pretzel, and there was a worker who was clearing out the rubble, and he found this twisted piece of metal didn't really know what it was and threw it in a trash pile. Later, he overheard people asking where that sword was. 
and he remembered throwing this twisted piece of metal in the garbage. And that's when that little light bulb went on above his head, and he realized he had just thrown away a sword that once belonged to America's first president. So he went and back to the trash pile, and fortunately he was able to recover the object. After World War II, the sword was restored and repaired. Not perfectly, but at least it looks like a sword again. So I would probably give this weapon an, a non-magical plus one bonus, but I would grant it a plus three to saving throws. And the reason for that is because we can see this sword as being lucky because it was almost lost forever. And again, it was just because of that lucky coincidence that that worker overheard those people talking and realized he had thrown away this sword. That's what saved it. So if that hadn't happened, you know, maybe if the, that worker was on his lunch break or something while those people were talking, this sword may have been lost to us forever. Now, since it did survive a fire, I could also see giving it the properties of a ring of fire resistance if you want to add more of a magical twist to this weapon. The next weapon I'd like to talk about is a knife that belonged to a famous frontiersman and folk hero, James Bowie, who lived from 1796 to 1836. And this is the Bowie knife. Not just a Bowie knife, but the Bowie knife. So this would have been the one that James Bowie would have used through his lifetime. The name Bowie knife has become attached to a type of fixed blade fighting knife with a cross guard, clip point, and a wide blade. James Bowie was known to be a bit of a brawler. And while there are several accounts of his life and his reported deeds, not all of them can be verified. One of his most famous exploits was an event called the Sandbar Fight. This was the result of a duel between members of two wealthy families, Samuel Wells III and Dr. Thomas Maddox. Bowie was one of the supporters in attendance for Wells. The duel ended with both men firing their shots but neither one being injured, so the duel was declared a draw and the participants ended in a handshake. However, the actual brawl was started by the supporters. During the fight, Bowie was injured but survived. The knife he used in this fight, though, would not be in the same shape as the Bowie knife that we think of today. This particular knife probably would have been similar to a butcher knife in terms of size and appearance. The design for what we now call a Bowie knife came later when James Bowie spoke with a blacksmith named James Black, and the two worked out a design that would eventually become what we now know as the Bowie knife. It was said that Bowie used this knife to kill three gunmen who were sent to assassinate him. Thanks to this knife, one of them was nearly decapitated, one was disemboweled, and the other had his skull nearly split open. Now, like some of the other legendary weapons I've discussed in this series, at least one of the knives attributed to Bowie in his early years might still survive. The historic Arkansas Museum has a knife with an engraving on it, Bowie N01. 
So Bowie number one, which is believed to be one of the knives that James Black made for Bowie. Sadly, the original Bowie knife is probably lost to history. Jim Bowie would go on to take part in the Battle of the Alamo. Now, by the time of the battle, he was bedridden due to illness. There's a few different accounts of his death. One says that he shot himself, though considering what we know about Bowie, I would think that's probably pretty unlikely. Another is that he was carried out alive by Mexican soldiers. Another account states he was too weak to move and was shot in his bed. The most popular account, and what historians believe is probably the most accurate, is he braced himself against the wall and took out as many soldiers as he could before he was killed. Originally, he was going to be given a proper burial, but Santa Anna decided that he should be burned in a mass pyre along with the rest of the fallen Alamo defenders. When his mother heard about his death, she calmly replied, I wager no wounds were found in his back. So as far as the knife itself, I would actually give it better damage. I would stat it out as actually a short sword as opposed to just a regular knife or dagger. And I would probably give it about a plus two, again, most likely due to quality as opposed to, you know, magic. And I would also give it a higher critical hit chance or maybe depending on the version of Dungeons and Dragons or the game you're using, maybe instead of giving it the higher critical chance, allow it to inflict more damage on a critical hit. Now, again, it is possible the weapon may have survived. Uh, It's certainly possible that a Mexican soldier after the battle may have retrieved the knife and taken it with him as a trophy without realizing the historical significance that that knife would have had. The next weapon is Davy Crockett's rifle. Davy Crockett was born in 1786 and died in 1836, like James Bowie did, at the Battle of the Alamo. Now, as far as I know, he didn't have any specific names for his rifles, and I couldn't find any evidence that he had one specific rifle that he favored. So that's why I am taking a little bit of liberty here. Now, Davy Crockett has been popularized in many uh, different movies and uh, TV shows, Disney actually used to have a TV series they did about him called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which had a catchy theme song. And I remember my mom once told me that when my uncle was younger, he really liked that show and uh, he actually could sing the full song. Well, Crockett himself was born in Tennessee, where he was known to be a good hunter and a good storyteller. He also worked as a cattle herder to help pay off some of his family's debts. Later, he served as a scout in the Tennessee militia during the Creek Wars, though he felt better suited to the role of a hunter uh, than fighting the Native Americans during that particular war. He later served in the War of 1812 and became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, at the Battle of the Alamo, it is believed that he fought until the end. There is a famous painting of him using his rifle as a club. So, as far as how he would stat out his rifle, 
I would give it the same stats and properties as an Archibus, even though the Archibus is a, an earlier weapon, but at least I remember in 2nd edition, the Archibus had this property where if it did 1d10 damage, but if you rolled a natural 10, you got to roll again. And if you rolled another natural 10, you got to roll again. So theoretically, you could inflict just a ton of damage with a single shot. I would also give it the bonuses of a crossbow of accuracy, you know, again, where it's going to give you a better hit chance because of it being a quality weapon. I would also make it sturdy enough that it could be used as a melee weapon. Now, it's kind of hard to determine exactly how much damage or what type of weapon it should inflict damage as, considering that, uh, again, while you, you'd use it two-handed, it wasn't specifically designed to be used as a melee weapon. So I would give it the damage of at least a quarterstaff, maybe a mace. So again, that might that might depend on which version of D&D you're playing, as well as how your DM wants to interpret the weapon. Now, the next weapon that I like to talk about is one that exists strictly in the realms of folklore, and that is John Henry's Sledgehammer. Now, there's a famous poem about him. There's a story goes that he was a railway worker and that he was assigned to a team that was blowing up a part of a mountain so they can make a tunnel through it. And the company wanted to use a steam drill. However, uh, John Henry decided that he wanted to challenge the steam drill to see how he'd do against it. So here's three verses from a famous poem about John Henry. John Henry said to his captain, A man is nothing but a man. But before I let your steam drill beat me down, I die with a hammer in my hand. Lord, Lord, I die with a hammer in my hand. The man then invented the steam drill. He figured he was mighty high and fine. But John Henry sunk the steel down 14 feet, while the steam drill only made nine. Lord, Lord, the steam drill only made nine. John Henry hammered on the right-hand side. The steam drill kept driving on the left. John Henry beat that steam drill down, but he hammered his poor heart to death. Lord, Lord, he hammered his poor heart to death. So there's been a lot of ways people have, in, have interpreted this uh, legend of John Henry. He's been the symbol of cultural movements, the lib the civil rights movement, as well as labor movements. And it was said that John Henry is a symbol of physical strength and endurance, of exploited labor, of the dignity of a human being against the degradations of the machine age, and of racial pride and solidarity. During World War II, his image was used in U.S. government propaganda as a symbol of social tolerance and diversity which comes from Reflections on John Henry, Ethical Issues in Singing Performance, from the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism by J. Bicknell. So we can certainly see that uh, story as symbolic of the strength of human will, but unfortunately, as some people have said, it also can be symbolic of the eventual defeat of manual labor in the face of technology. Now, there's some argument as to whether John Henry was based on a historical person or not. 
There are historians and researchers who have suggested that Henry may have been based on a real person. One account states that the event may have happened near Talcott, West Virginia. Henry may have worked for Chesapeake and Ohio Railway on the Big Bend Tunnel. In 1929, a sociology professor named Guy Johnson visited the area and spoke to several men who would have been in their teens around the time the tunnel was built. He eventually found someone who claimed to have witnessed the event. And here is the account that Johnson recorded. This man, known as Neil Miller, told me in plain words how he had come to the tunnel with his father at 17 how he carried water and drills for the steel drivers, how he saw John Henry every day, and finally, all about the contest between John Henry and the steam drill. When the agent for the steam drill company brought the drill here, said Mr. Miller, John Henry wanted to drive against it. He took a lot of pride in his work, and he hated to see a machine take the work of men like him. Well, they decided to hold a test to get an idea of how practical the steam drill was. The test went on all day and part of the next day. John Henry won. He wouldn't rest enough, and he overdid. He took sick and died soon after that. Mr. Miller described the steam drill in detail. I made a sketch of it, and later, when I looked up pictures of the early steam drills, I found his description correct. I asked people about Mr. Miller's reputation, and they all said, if Neil Miller said anything happened, it happened. So as we can see, it looks like the researcher here did manage to find someone who was believed to have been a reliable witness and who may very well have witnessed this particular event. However, there is another researcher, Scott Reynolds Nelson, an associate professor of history at the College of William and Mary, and he did some research into the subject, and he believes that the legend is more properly placed with the Lewis Tunnel near Millborough, Virginia. He wrote a book about the legend called Steel Driving Man, John Henry and the untold story of an American legend. He suggested that Henry may have been a prisoner, and the warden of the prison he was kept at believed that since many of the inmates who were arrested on minor charges, it would have been better to put them to work for private contractors rather than having them just you know, stay in prison all the time. However, it was said he later began to oppose the convict labor practice. Professor Nielsen notes that there were prison records for a John William Henry. He also states that the records do not indicate steam drills being used during the construction of the Big Bend Tunnel. However, records indicate that steam drills and inmate labor was used in the construction of the Lewis Tunnel. Also, some versions of John Henry's story say he was buried in sand near a White House where locomotives roar. This could indicate he was buried in the cemetery behind Virginia State Penitentiary, which was white at the time, and researchers have found unmarked graves there. 
Not sure if it's anywhere near train tracks, but still, it does give a little bit of credence to the story, or a little bit of believability to the story. However, again, like the story that Guy Johnson pushed for, it's still both of these still do rely a bit more on circumstantial evidence. So, since Henry's hammer is a legendary item as opposed to a historical one, we can have a little bit more fun with it and statting it out. First, I would say that you need at least an 18 strength to use it properly. Because, well, Henry himself was was said to be well over six feet tall and very broad and very powerful in stature. And he said his, I think they said that the head of his uh, hammer was 12 pounds or 14 pounds, something like that. So you would have needed to have been pretty strong to be able to swing that thing. As far as its abilities, I would give it the abilities of a horn of blasting that could be used three times per day. But the effect would be delivered through a strike as opposed to sounding of the horn. As far as a magical bonus, I would give it a plus two, plus three, something like that. But I think you could also add an additional power to this weapon. And that would be it could boost the character's strength and constitution once a day for a few rounds. And... As far as how much of a bonus you want to give, again, that's really going to vary depending on this, the version of D&D you're using. If you're using 1st or 2nd edition, I could see giving it where it boosts your strength up to a 20. Because again, that's well above what the normal man would be able to get, but not quite in the realm of some of the more powerful giants. And I would also have it boost your con to that level as well. In later versions of D&D, probably would say maybe give your character a temporary plus three or plus four boost to their strength and con score. However, this is not an ability that you should use lightly. To keep with the legend of John Henry, remember, he was able to use it to accomplish this incredible feat, but he overexerted himself and died shortly afterwards. So how you would work this with the hammer, I would say that after the the strength and con bonus wears off, your character should be forced to make the appropriate saving throw, like a maybe a, a fortitude save if you're using one of the later versions of D&D, or if you're using the earlier versions of D&D, I would say maybe a, either a save versus poison, well, probably a save versus death magic would be most appropriate. And if you fail the save, you instantly pass over dead. Now, whether you'd want someone who dies in this manner to be able to be brought back would be entirely up to you, but it should just remind players that they're using a powerful weapon here, and if they're going to truly unlock its full potential, there may be a cost to it. So there you have it, a look at some historical weapons from American history and folklore. And like I said before, next episode I'm going to be covering some Native American uh, weapons and armor and equipment so hopefully you'll find hopefully you found this episode interesting and I hope you find the other one interesting as well and with that said I'd like to thank you for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon whatever it is wherever you are and happy gaming 
You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.